Hi, this is Ed Sharlack, writer of television shows for 45 years and counting. And uh, you're listening to Then Is Now podcast. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at GetDeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. What kind of a sick school is this? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You got spunk. I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, righty then. How you doing? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Say hello to my little friend. I love to celebrate plum in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I got a crap on deck that can choke a donkey. Hey! Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Can I do that? I'll be back. A dynamite! Show me the money! Don't! Up your nose when you have a home. A what? I'm sailing! I'm sailing! Groovy. You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Here's looking at you, kid. We got no food, we got no jobs, our pets' heads are falling off! Come to the coast, we get together, have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to join you, honey! I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We're on a mission from God. Welcome to another great episode of Then Is Now, the podcast in which we discuss pop culture of the past and help you, the listener, to introduce young people to all the cool stuff they missed out on. I'm your host, Rigor, and with me again today is my co-host, filmmaker Chris Esper. Welcome back, Chris. Hey, thanks again for having me as always. It's been a while. You know, our schedules yes. have been crazy. What do you got going on? Oh, just work and uh, just trying to do some writing on my feature film. So that's been uh, that's been a thing. Nice. <laughs> so, nice. yes. And yes. what's the show? You've got a show on Netflix or, or HBO or something, right? Oh, yeah. So I was just uh, I worked as an assistant editor on several specials. Uh, Bill Maher for uh, HBO, uh, David Spade for netflix uh the name of that special is nothing's per nothing personal and uh i also the latest one i did was the pete davidson show pete davidson and best friends i worked on that one as well nice nice that's awesome yeah, yeah. so i'm transitioning i'm in the middle of transitioning out of my old job and old career and moving into a brand new one 
And mm-hmm. um, for those who don't know, I am now the I am now a soap opera news writer for Static Media's website, thelist.com. And um, I've already got a few articles posted, and it's one of those things where uh, I kind of working one job and then working low amount of hours with the new job, the writing, and then once I get out of there, which will probably be the end of July, then I'll be full time doing you know forty hours a week writing for the list. So um, I'm excited. It's been real fun so far. Just a handful of articles that I've written already. That's amazing. I mean, that's a dream for anyone that's in this kind of career. To especially knowing you, you like to. I mean, you're you're very, you're, you're very much into that kind of stuff. So I mean, you know, I, I imagine not only you'd be very good at it, but also that uh, it's like a dream job for you. Well, thank you. And yes, yes, it is. You know, it's like as everyone knows who listens to the show. I I've been watching GH or General Hospital, I should say, for since 1981. And the other shows I'm familiar with because my my mom and my nana would watch them. They're, they're gotta watch my stories. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I I am tangentially uh, familiar with them, and now I'm kind of broadening that and, and deepening that and becoming more familiar with the other shows. Um, I don't know if I'm gonna watch all four soap operas that are left because it's hard enough to watch. They're on every day of the week. They're on five days a week with no repeats. So it's. <laughs> It's, it's hard enough just to keep up with General Hospital. So what I might do is once a week, maybe on the weekend, I'll watch the Friday episodes of the other three shows. There's, there's Young and the Restless, Bold and the Beautiful, and Days of Our Lives, along with General Hospital. Those are the only four daytime soap operas left. Um, mm. But I'm always, looking... a new, always a new story. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. What's <laughs> happened is Evil Twin is back. Right. <laughs> oh, no. He has amnesia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't laugh. General Hospital just did an amnesia storyline last year. Of so. course they did. They all do that. <laughs> oh, my God. But I'm looking so forward to it because for me, this is going to open up other writing opportunities. It'll. It's, first of all, it cuts down on me paying gas to get to my other job and the drive time. It was. It's 40 minutes there and 40 minutes back, which you know I've tolerated for seven years now. But um, now I have that extra time to not only work the writing job, but I can start writing you know, trying to write for other outlets and even maybe putting my own scripts together finally after, you know, 52 years of trying to figure it out. But anyways, let's get right on to today's topic. Howard Johnson's was a major staple of American pop culture from the late 1920s until the early 2010s. When it started, it was a restaurant unlike any other out there, and it really paved the way for pretty much most of the restaurants that we have today, including the fast food chains. On the show, we have a special guest who is a historian and author, and he wrote a book on the history of this amazing national restaurant. So sit back and prepare yourself for an awesome jaunt down memory lane. Class is in session. I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Food fight! Hey, you in my class? I am today. I think you should consider transferring to shop class. Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shop class. Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good, sign this. Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell ring and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, so. You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're going to have recess all the time. Woo! Go, play, and have fun now.
Okay, folks, our guest today has been referred to by the Boston Globe as the Balzac of Boston history. He's a noted historian and author of over 70 books on the history and development of Boston. And he lectures widely on the history and development of his native city, Dorchester. He commenced writing in 1995 and his books, Lost Boston, The History of Howard Johnson's How a Massachusetts Soda Fountain Became a Roadside Icon, Jordan Marsh, New England's largest store, and the Baker Chocolate Company, A Sweet History, have all made the bestsellers list. He teaches the popular course Boston History at the Boston University Metropolitan College. He's also taught at the Urban College of Boston since 1997, where his courses led to him being named Educator of the Year. He wrote the book Boston's Immigrants for the widely diverse ethnic base of students he used in his course on Boston immigration, and he serves on the Leadership Council. He has received the Bullfinch Award from the Dorrit James of the Massachusetts State House, the Washington Medal from Freedom Foundation, a lifetime achievement from both the Victorian Society and the Gibson House Museum, and was named Dorchester Town Historian by Raymond L. Flynn, former mayor of Boston, for his work in local history. He was elected a fellow of the Massachusetts Historical Society and is a member of Boston's Authors Club, a proprietor of the Boston Athenaeum, and the St. Botolf Club in Boston. He's the former president of the Bay State Historical League and has served as a corporator of the New England Baptist Hospital for a decade. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure to welcome to the show author Anthony Samarco. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome, awesome. So, as I said when I first contacted you, do you recall a few years back you did a presentation on your Howard Johnson's book at the Saugus Library? And I, I videotaped it. I certainly do. Yeah. Yes, I very well. Actually, I think we became uh, Facebook friends because of that. So That's right, yes, because uh, Laura Eisner is the president, and she had asked me, and I remember meeting you when you did the videotaping. It's a lot of fun because I think sometimes everybody seems to have a, a story or something that they wish to share about Howard Johnson. I agree. I agree, and I think that a lot of the viewers enjoyed it too. We got a lot of response at the at the TV station when I was there. Um, Thank you. So, when did Lost Boston come out? Because I'm I'm pretty sure I have a copy of it somewhere in my house and all my books. It came out about seven years ago, and Lost Boston was something which was to be published by Pavilion, which is a publishing company in London, and they had already done what they had started, which was the city series for the United States. They'd already done Lost New York, Lost Chicago, Lost Baltimore, uh, Lost Washington, D.C. And when they contacted me, they were editing Lost Las Vegas. And I said to myself, if they can do Las Vegas, they can certainly do Boston. (laughs) And it was something that I had to choose 150 different sites that didn't just basically represent, you know, the grand houses of Boston and the churches. But they wanted something from the advent of photography from the 1850s to the present for every single decade that was once something that not only we, but our parents, our grandparents, and our great-grandparents would have known. So it was sports arenas and, yes, places of worship. There were also horticultural halls. There were restaurants. And the aspect was that out of the 150 that I chose and did short writings on, they only chose 68. And it wasn't always the ones that I was most interested in, but the concept was they wanted something that was a good rounding of what the city of Boston represented. 
And it was a fun book to do because, you know, albumum photographs from the Boston Public Library, as well as a text that was not only readable, but applicable to the photograph to explain exactly what it was. And it went through a series of uh, reprints, but it actually has recently gone out of print. I'm just hoping they actually do reprint it. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Um, so uh, during the intro, of course, I read off a lot of your works and achievements, but um, how did you get onto the path of being a historian and a writer? Well, the idea was, in some ways, not only as my undergraduate, but one of my graduate degrees is in history. And yes, I intended to teach history. But I realized in my very early 20s that it was not going to be as lucrative as I had assumed. So I got an MBA and I actually worked for a company as treasurer and it was an importing company and it was in a fascinating aspect of doing financial work during the day and lectures and research in the evening and weekends. So beginning in my late 20s, early 30s, I began to write books for what was called Arcadia Publications. Arcadia has done books on every city, town, village and crossroads in the United States. Yeah. And Alan Sutton was the publisher, and we became very friendly. During that period of time, I also began to do things with the History Press Pavilion, of course. And at that point, I was nearing the 50-book mark, and it was on basically every single neighborhood of the city of Boston and a few surrounding cities and towns to the city. But then Alan Sutton sold Arcadia, and he basically had a small hiatus. Then he started a new company called Fonthill in London. And I've been writing with him now for the last five years. And the books are up to 85. So it's been something that not only I write for local papers. I wrote for a decade for the Dorchester Community News. I wrote for a decade with the Milton Times. And I also submitted you know, articles Mission Hill Gazette and East Boston Times and various other newspapers. But it was something in a lot of ways that it was important to get these things, not just as a lecture, but to preserve them in writing with good photographs. Because, you know, much of the population in Boston is, in this instance, it's a demographic shift. Since World War II, we've never been as broad-based and inclusive as we are. And in that instance, I was hoping to preserve the history that I had researched, the history that I was fascinated with, and the history that is applicable, not just to Brahmins and Puritans that actually had settled Boston in 1630, but the many people, including myself, that descend from the immigrants who actually came in the 19th and 20th century. So in some ways, by doing this history, which I continue to do on a annual basis, I do between five and six books. I find it to be something that's not only rewarding for myself, but it's also something in some ways when I present a lecture and people tell me stories about how it applies to them, it makes it all so much more worthwhile. That's awesome. That's awesome. So um, what led you to pick Howard Johnson's in particular to write an entire book about? Well, I was the curator of the Milton Historical Society, and I was always trying to find local history, things that I could write about for the newspaper. 
Well, one of the aspects was Howard Johnson lived in Milton from 1939 until his death in 1972. He also lived on Fifth Avenue in New York. He had a place in Greenwich, Connecticut. But the aspect was here was a local person, and it was a way to entice people with local history that was something that wasn't just local, but national history. And Howard Johnson just fascinated me. It was something in some ways that I knew as a child. Um, We did dine there. We had ice cream there. And it was something in some ways by collecting things through eBay as well as through various other ephemera and paper shows, I was able to put together a wonderful selection of photographs, but also just doing research. I can remember during that time that I would spend hours in various libraries just reading annual reports. In some ways, it was trying to distill all that information into something that was readable and hopefully interesting to the general public. And I think in that instance, it was something that went the gamut from, you know, the fact that 1925, when the the store started in Wollaston, a part of Quincy, but it was also right through to the period in the early 1980s when, of course, it was sold to Imperial Group, a British conglomerate. So it was something that talked about who he was as a person. I even hired a genealogist to do his genealogy. I tried to show how the company was inherited by the son, Howard Brennan Johnson, and then tried in some ways to incorporate all of these things from ice cream and fried clams and basically the aspect of dietitians working with Howard Johnson, the franchise industry, and then, of course, even the motel industry. It was fascinating, and I think sometimes when I realize now, probably what, 10 years later, that it is something that has hundreds of hits on Amazon, but it's also something that really does apply to people of a certain age, and it's something in some ways that actually is something that is a fond memory. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have fond memories of going to uh, to Howard Johnson's when I was a kid. I do, too. Yeah. I always loved it. My father traveled, and Sometimes we would actually go with my mother, and I I would say to myself, this is wonderful. I I actually enjoyed it very much. But, you know, doing this research was something that brought a lot of different people to the forefront. One of the things is they did serve not only full-bellied clams from the Ipswich River, but they also provided tender sweet clams, which were the first clam strips to be sold in the United States in 1951. Right, And it all came from the Sofran brothers, who were Greek immigrants from Ipswich. And they had basically a, what, 36-year um, sole franchise. They actually were the only um, people that provided uh, clams to Howard Johnson's. So it was something that was not just locally important. It was something in some ways that many people contributed to making this into something that was the Orange Roof Empire. Right, right. And, you know, I got to say, my whole life, I've never been a fan of seafood. I don't like seafood. But when I was a kid, I used to love Howard Johnson's fried clam strips. (laughs) I don't know why. I love them. (laughs) Well, I think it's also the fact they're fried and everything fried tastes wonderful. But it's, (laughs) it's very important to realize this man worked with a woman by the name of Virginia Church. She was a dietitian. 
and she and her husband were living in Boston while he attended the Harvard Medical School. And during the period, she worked with Howard Johnson to create these menus of not just fresh roast turkey every day and fried clams, but also mm-hmm. things like chicken croquettes and, you know, such things as um, shrimp curry and all sorts of different foods that would actually be standardized for the company. But she became quite well known along with her husband, and they had a thing called the Bows and Church Caloric Guide. And the caloric guide told you, you know, basically how many calories you were eating. But they were actually people that worked at the very beginning with Howard Johnson and continued right through to the 1940s. That's amazing, especially for back mm. then. And you, you sort of answered this already, but do you have any personal or fond, any other personal or fond memories of going to Howard Johnson's? Well, you know, the funny thing was, um, I'm colorblind. And when we would approach a Howard Johnson's, there was an orange roof. Now, I can see orange. Don't ask me why. <laughs> but I can see orange. <laughs> but the turquoise blue shutters could have been purple or blue to me. But one of the things I liked about it was it was architecturally significant. And even as a child, I was fascinated with architecture. And I looked at this as something that wasn't just a restaurant. To me, it was something that in many ways embodied, I don't know, the roadside restaurant of the 1930s and 1940s. Sure. It was also the fact plate glass windows, everything was shining clean. I loved the placemats with not only simple Simon of the Pieman, but even the plates and cups and saucers and even the spoons were embossed with this logo. (laughs) And it was something that made it all the more fun that, yes, children's menus came with a dish of ice cream. But at the end, of course, there was a confectionery counter and one could get milk chocolate lollipops that were made by the Howard Johnson commissaries. That was a place that wasn't just a restaurant it was really something that was special at least to me oh yeah i agree and um so can you give us uh let's step back a bit here and can you give us a brief history on how how would you i mean i obviously i we want people to go out and read your book it's a it's a thoroughly enjoyable and fascinating read from beginning to end but can you give us sort of a brief history on on how howard got himself started and on the path to creating perhaps one of the greatest restaurant chains in history he most certainly did create the greatest chain. It went from Maine to Florida, from the East Coast to the West. But he had served in World War I, and when he returned to Boston, he began to actually assist his father. His father was a cigar jobber, and during that period, he had been fairly successful. But he actually received an order of cigars, and he had prepaid for them, and of course, they were damaged. He went bankrupt. Howard Johnson continued to assist the father, but he died young. Howard Johnson then had debt to the tune of $30,000. Now, in the 1920s, you know, the economy was doing well, but Howard Johnson actually took what little savings he had, and he actually opened a small store in Wollaston at the corner of Beale Street, which was the old Walker Barlow drugstore. And he transformed it into something that didn't just serve light breakfasts, lunch, and even dinners. But he worked with a man named Everett Porter to create not just premium ice cream, which was a 16% butterfat count, but 28 flavors that appealed to every palate. 
the reason he really became so successful at that store was that directly across the street was the Wollaston Depot of the granite branch of the old Colony Railroad. Right. And as Quincy was increasing in size and population, it became a city, we realized that people were commuting to Boston for both business as well as pleasure in the evening. And the idea here was that Howard Johnson was providing not only newspapers and magazines and cigars and cigarettes, but many times a quick breakfast and a cup of coffee or even an ice cream cone in the afternoon. Well, during that period, he and Everett Porter really did a wonderful job in creating the creamiest, smoothest, most delicious ice cream. And of course, within a year, he opened a stand at Wollaston Beach, and he did sell, of course, fried clams and cool drinks and roast frankfurts, but he also served his ice cream. And it was so successful that within the next year, he was selling at Revere Beach as well as Nantasket Beach. But in 1929, Howard Johnson, who had by then paid off his father's debt to the tune of $30,000, opened his first restaurant at Quincy Square. And it was in the ground floor of the Granite Trust Building, which still stands in the direct center of Quincy Square. Hmm. And during that period, he worked, as I mentioned earlier, with Virginia Church to create very delicious and very New England-flavored dinners. And he, of course, had not only businessmen lunches and dinners, but it was something that people simply came by simply for a cup of coffee and a piece of pie. During the Depression, he actually became the father of the franchise industry. Because in 1935, Howard Johnson worked with a man named Reginald Heber Sprague, who lived in Wollaston and was a good friend of Johnson's. But he had property in Orleans on Cape Cod. The idea here was that his father, who was Captain Sprague, still, still lived in the family house, but it had a huge piece of land that was actually in a very strategic place, 6A and 28 on either side of that triangular spot. Right. Today, it's the site of the uh, Christmas tree shop. And when he opened that restaurant, and of course, Sprague was the first franchise to actually start, he was able in some ways to create something that would spur on, up until the period of the 1940s, over 125 restaurants and ice cream shops throughout the New England, New York, and New Jersey states. By 1939, he even had them in Florida. So he was somebody who was working, and this is his own quote, 18 hours a day, seven days a week, unquote, as something that was not just hard work, drive, and determination, but I think he was a perfectionist. And one of the things he always said is, if I'm not pleased with the quality of my food, and it's the type of a thing that I serve to the public, they should not be happy with it either. And in that way, Howard Johnson was somebody who actually made a name for himself. And even Fortune magazine did an article on who is Howard Johnson. So he truly was somebody who started just at a corner store, but by the period of the 1950s was grossing millions of dollars on an annual basis. Hmm. Hmm. And uh, why did Sprague uh, have to close between 1943 and 1944? 
Well, Sprague closed because one of the things is many of the commissaries weren't providing all of the food. Um, during the period of World War II, because of fuel rationing, Howard Johnson would see many of the restaurants close, not only the ones he owned outright, but many of the franchises. It was only temporary, but the concept was he still had to keep this business running. During that period, he got the commission to not only provide food for Four River Shipyard, but he also provided food for Elliott House at Harvard, where my father was, to actually provide food for the naval officers training. So not only was my father at Elliott House at Harvard, but he actually went back there for officers training. So he was somebody in a lot of ways who was not only able to keep this business going, mind you, he had a widowed mother and he had two sisters to support and a wife. It was something that in many instances, you know, many of these restaurants would not really fully reopen until after 1944. Right, right. And so at this point, we're getting to the advent of the longer roads and highways. And, and as you mentioned about the theater, I mean, yeah, the theater and the, the train station being in front of his businesses, hit, um, the proximity for him, in a way, at the beginning was, was a lot of luck. But then he started to realize the potential of actually having, I think you just said in, in the house, was on the, it was on the, um, the crux of Route 28 and was it 64? Route 28 and 6A. 6A, that's what it was. Mm. And uh, in my brain, I see a 664. Um, but, you know, so proximity for him was kind of a big thing. And so did that, do you know if that sort of inspired him? If he said, hey, wait a minute now, these three things did really well because of where they were. I need to start thinking like that. As early as 1935, Howard Johnson had five architects on staff. He would work with the people that wanted to buy a franchise. And he always gave them caution. They had to be on a major road. So here was this major road in Orleans. The second one was in Dorchester, and it was on the old Colony Parkway, which was the only way in and out of Boston before the Southeast Expressway was built. The third, Wellington Circle in Medford, of course, four major roads. So by building on a major road with an orange roof and turquoise blue shutters, he began to realize in some ways, if you didn't see it during the day, you might see the colored neon sign that was outside at night. He worked with these people, and surprisingly, many of them did extremely well. Hmm. He was somebody in a lot of ways that worked with these people. They had to buy all of their food and ice cream through the commissaries, and that's basically how Howard Johnson's made his money. But it was also quality food. And you had to realize that you know, these men, the Sofran brothers in Ipswich, were having a group of women shuck, you know, clams every single day, seven days a week to meet the demand. So right. a lot of these people, even though they were providing services to Howard Johnson, also made a very good living. So Howard Johnson, in some ways, had the golden touch. He... He seemed to know the public's taste. He seemed to know what people wanted. And with a man by the name of John Alcott, who was a graphic designer from Westwood, Massachusetts, he would work with Howard Johnson to create that brand. Simple Simon met the pieman with a drooling dog. And that 
logo was something that was the most readily identifiable logo in the food industry. So it was embossed on everything from lollipops to placemats to swizzle sticks. So in some ways, advertising in nationwide magazines with full page um, advertisements when one saw it on the East Coast, they saw it equally on the West Coast. And it was something that people began to realize. A lot of them were really quite charming and beautifully illustrated. But between hard work, craftiness in creating that restaurant franchise industry, as well as also doing things such as these marketing techniques, he was superb at it. He really excelled. Excellent, excellent. And uh, what went into the research uh, for the book? Well, this is the thing. I read everything I could possibly find. And it went the gamut from not just Fortune magazine, which did an article in 1939. I mentioned earlier, who was, who is Howard Johnson? Hmm. And you looked at these things and you said, wow, I mean, this is incredible. This man in 1925 who was basically anonymous had by 1939 become a nationwide name. And of course, he was a real person. It wasn't just the name of a restaurant. But I also would buy things on eBay from employee manuals. I bought a cookbook. I even have cookbooks in Braille. Can you imagine? Oh, wow. Wow. How it, how it <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I was astonished, and I would buy everything I found. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it wasn't just photographs and postcards, but I even found family photographs on eBay. And his wow. daughter, a woman by the name of Dorothy Johnson Henry, who's deceased now, had said to me, where did you find these family photographs? And I, I had to say, eBay. Wow. But what it was was showing this man at the store club in New York and entertaining his friends and family. Jacques Pepin, who is today, of course, a great French chef, was somebody who worked for Howard Johnson for a decade. Wow. And wow. Jacques Pepin had learned at the commissary in Jamaica, New York, not only how to bone a hundred turkeys a day, but how to make a hundred gallons of clam chowder so that it tasted the same as if it was made as a gallon of chowder. Sure. He also worked with Howard Johnson to actually test freezing of food because the consistency, you know, in the 1960s was something in a lot of ways that's very different than it is today. But Jacques Pepin was to learn a lot from Howard Johnson and Howard Johnson threw his wedding and was actually his best man. So Jack Pepin has a lot to thank, not just Julia Child, but Howard <laughs> Johnson. Wow. So I think in a lot of ways, you know, there are many people, Pierre Franey was another French chef that worked for mm. Howard Johnson. Yeah. So what he was doing in some ways is he was this quote, fast food restaurant, unquote, Mm-hmm. Not fast food by what we think of fast food today, sure. but in the 1960s, it was fast food. But mm-hmm. he served everything from specials that included sometimes steaks, chops, lobster tails, um, filet mignon. But the concept was he had the standbys of clam chowder, fried mm-hmm. clams, French fries, ice cream, things that appealed And the surprising thing is, because he had a cookbook, they did not change 
in consistency and flavor, whether it was in Maine or Florida or California. Everything had the same quality and taste. So if you had the best French fries and clams you ever had in York, Maine, you were sure to have them anywhere else when you went to a Howard Johnson. Hmm. Uh, and talk about timeline a little bit in writing the book. Like, how long did it take you to, from the research to the writing to the publishing from beginning to end? Like, what, uh, how long was that process? Well, I'd, overall? I'd say probably 16 months because when I wow. did this, I had begun to do a lot of research. And I mean, it sounds peculiar, but eBay, Wikipedia, and things of that sort, at least it gave you a little bit of a background. But then I began to do things that were articles in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the Boston Herald. I would spend an entire day visiting the Johnson family graves. Wow. I spent another day visiting every house that he lived in to see basically what was it like? I mean, who is this man? And it went the gamut from a very simple house that he lived in as a child in Wollaston to a magnificent mansion that was on Brush Hill Road in Milton. But the idea was, in some ways, it was also trying to find people to discuss this with. And it went the gamut. I lived in Milton. There were a lot of retired employees, including the son of the attorney for the company, oh. who loaned me, um, you know, not only a lot of memorabilia, but the annual reports from the 1940s on. Wow. And they were fascinating. <laughs> I spent days in repositories, you know, at the Quincy Historical Society and, you know, the Milton Public Library, the Quincy Library. And what it was was trying to put something together that was readable and in a time frame that showed people how this man, by 1959, had built a restaurant chain that was worth $750 million. And yeah. in that instance, you realize that he had started in debt. He paid off his father's debt. He also took loans from his widowed mother and Dr. George Dalton, who was an internist at Quincy City Hospital. So he was somebody who obviously was not only honorable, but he was also somebody in some ways that realized that a lot of people depended on him, whether it was a waitress or a hostess, the line chef, or just a simple cook, or maybe the busboy. Everyone depended on this man, and the concept was he gave back tenfold. Right. So by doing research, it was also starting a Howard Johnson page on Facebook and posting queries such as, you know, hey, did anybody ever taste the pistachio ice cream? And then, of course, everybody had to tell you <laughs> what their favorite ice cream was. But in the <laughs> meantime, there'd be little tidbits. I'd post a picture. Does anybody remember this restaurant? And by doing that, you truly get the public's honest opinions. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what I do in my writing. Facebook is something I don't use for social intercourse or chatting, really. It's something that I use to post and show different parts of Boston's history. Right. And a restaurant like Howard Johnson, which really, you know, started in the Boston area, is something in some ways that many people remember vividly. 
And by doing that, it would be something that I would get people telling me stories that could be incorporated into the book. So oh, it was yeah. something in a lot of ways. 16, honestly, 16 months. It was uh, something in some ways that I must have spent, honestly, 40 hours a week. And it was fun. I enjoyed it immensely. You could tell. It comes through in your writing, you know, and it, it's thoroughly fascinating. You have so many so many details and historical things, and, and we'll touch on those in a little bit. I kind of wanted to jump back to the food for a second because um, in talking about the standardization of how his he wanted his food to be consistently tasting good and tasting the same in every restaurant and that sort of uh, as a side note i just thought of this it reminds me when i used to live down north of boston the kelly's roast beef in revere was always great it was a great roast beef oh, yeah. sandwich yep. but the kelly's in saugus yeah. is not that great they like overcook it or something that it's just not the same you know but he well that's the problem you know if somebody has a great sandwich and they go back a second time, maybe a month later, and it's not great. I say, well, maybe it's a chef or something of that sort. But what it truly is, is a lack of standardization. And I think one of the things that Howard Johnson did, just look at 28 flavors of ice cream, 16% butterfat, all natural ingredients. And he's whipped it so much that it is the most creamy, rich, delicious ice cream. And it was consistent for 50 years. Right. So the idea is if you hit something that not only is a success and it's um, something that the public really accepts with alacrity, you've created something in a lot of ways that you are, you know, duty bound to provide because that's something people want. And I think you're right sometimes when it's, a little overdone, a little underdone. I prefer overdone, but the <laughs> idea is it's not always the best way to look at it. And this is what Howard Johnson did. He totally standardized all of the ingredients and in these cookbooks that I, I have read from cover to cover. The only ones I didn't were the ones in Braille, but I, I love them. One was a luncheon, <laughs> the other one was a dinner. But um, I sat there and I thought, this is incredible. And, you know, I spent hundreds, hundreds of dollars on a weekly basis. And then there'd be another time I might spend a thousand. So honestly, over that 16 months, I probably spent close to $5,000 just acquiring wow. illustrations and photographs oh. and, you know, these employee guides and everything of that sort. I didn't keep anything. Everything went to the archives of the University of Massachusetts in Boston. And they keep, you know, all of my papers. They're accessible five days a week. And you can reinterpret the things that I've written for your own research. And I think in one instance, you know, it's such a complete collection. I'm not kidding. I was so happy to see it go it was like 11 boxes <laughs> <laughs> oh that's too funny so in terms of like the standardization um what was the the quick freezing process that he invented and, and did that did like all the food for the restaurants come from this the central hub or well they had they had various commissaries they had one in wollaston the building still stands it was just up the road on newport avenue in quincy 
but they also had one in Brockton and Taunton, Massachusetts. And then they had the one in Jamaica, which was Rego Park, New York. That was the largest of all of them because it basically was something where not only Pierre Franey, but you know Jacques Pepin worked. Hundreds of people would work 24 hours a day. You had to realize oh that God. this food was being prepared, but it was also something in some ways, you know, it, it's talked about in the book that Pierre Franey would say, um, you know, how difficult it was to please in some ways Howard Johnson. But Jacques Pepin, I can't tell you, the stories that are in his autobiography are incredible. When I taught, I still teach at Boston University Metropolitan College, and he recently gave a scholarship there, and it's for the culinary students. So I'm always somewhat intrigued to see how people, you know, looked at it and realized there was so much effort that was going into this. And, you know, I I don't think people realize. I mean, Jacques Pepin was somebody who was not only a successful French chef, and he was at Le Pavilion, which was in New York, where Howard Johnson and then his wife Marjorie Johnson used to like to dine. But he had been hired by Howard Johnson and worked in these vast test kitchens and in some ways was not only successful, but he was somebody in a lot of ways that earned the respect of his employees. Pepin, and this is a quote from the book, Pepin said that Howard Johnson had found a second father figure in him and he was charismatic, powerful, yet soft-spoken man. But that was the demanding and exacting man that he really was. Hmm. He was straightforward, candid, and always open to new ideas. But by working in that test kitchen, Pierre and I, this is a quote, so Pierre and Jacques Pepin, would prepare progressively larger quantities, improving its taste by cutting down on margarine and replacing it with butter using fresh onion instead of dehydrated onion, real potatoes instead of frozen ones. They made fresh stock in a quantity requiring 3,000 pounds of veal bones for each batch, and they daily boned 1,000 turkeys and made 10 tons of frankfurters. This was something in some ways that was not French cooking, nor was it something that would be for a trained chef. But I think what they were doing was working for a very benevolent man who obviously paid a very good salary, and they were working in unison. And I think that was what something Howard Johnson wanted to do in this business. It didn't matter who you were, but he had this thing he called the employee's book, and it's employee guide. So if everyone knew their job and they knew how it hinged on everyone else, it really could be a successful operation, whether it was his own restaurant or a franchise. But I think in this instance, here was Jacques Pepin, somebody we all see on PBS, not only preparing delicious foods and things of that sort, but he was somebody who got his real start at Howard Johnson's. And we don't think of Howard Johnson's as a fine French restaurant. Right. But you had to realize right. they were trained chefs working in the commissary to provide all of these things. And what they were doing was really case testing. 
not only these things, and can you imagine 3,000 pounds of veal bones for, you know, a fresh stock? <laughs> but they also did some things that, you know, such things that would actually become the standard of what Howard Johnson's recipes would become. And they called it the test kitchen. Mm-hmm. And today, you know, there's, you know, these various cooking shows, which I enjoy watching, and they have the test kitchen. Well, I think Howard Johnson was testing in the kitchen to find out basically what was good, what was going to appeal to the public. Were they going to eat veal cordon bleu? Or were they going to eat, you know, chicken stuffed with ham and cheese and deep fried? The wordage is something that could either be accepted or rejected. And what I think Howard Johnson really did was to make things that might be a little bit exotic attractive to the middle class. But Mm -hmm. it didn't matter. Everybody was going to Howard Johnson, and it doesn't matter whether it was somebody who was internationally famous or even because he had them at Times Square and many performers would actually have their dinner at Times Square's Howard Johnson. But it was also the people who just simply stopped by for an ice cream cone. But I think when Jack Pepin, who actually started writing, and this this book is The Apprentice of My Life in the Kitchen, he really does go into great detail. And he talks about how basically he was somebody who actually had learned a lot not only from Howard Johnson, but he went on to become somebody who had a Lifetime Achievement Award from the James Beard Foundation. And he was a member of the Chevalier de the Order of Arts and Letters in Paris. And this was a man who really got his start at Howard Johnson. Hmm. So when I did this book, I tried to find people that were the architects, you know, Virginia Church, the dietitian, Everett Porter, the man who experimented creating that creamy, delicious, rich ice cream. And, you know, it was funny. People would come out of the woodwork to tell me that they had been waitresses and their reminiscences. And there'd be other people that, you know, such as the clam shuckers who actually came forward and told the stories. Hmm. So I think in a lot of ways, this was something that was more than just a book. What it was was the thing that many people shared their memories, their stories, even their participation. And I think there's a little bit of a niche in it for every one of us. So it becomes in some ways something that's more than just a book. It's almost savoring a part of our, our youth or the fond memories we have of our parents or grandparents taking us to Howard Johnson, which as early as 1937, was tooted as a family-friendly restaurant with a children's menu. Right, right. It's like a time so capsule. A special place. You know, it's like a time capsule. It is. And I think today, when you realize that Howard Johnson was on, um, oh, what is that television show? I forgot it already. I want to say Angry Men, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. I'm sorry. There was a show which basically was like a 1950s uh, sitcom or something of that sort, and they had a Howard Johnson segment. Oh, too funny. I think, you know, it's funny because when I look at this, I really did, 
you know, try in some ways to show that there were, you know, all sorts of children's menus that went the gamut from the early 1930s and 40s. Baseball caps, you know, pancake face that all had the menus on the back. But then also the fact that many times during World War II, even if many of the restaurants were closed, there were enough of them open that Howard Johnson decreed that whether it was his own restaurant or a franchise, that a man or a woman in uniform was to be served a free meal. So it's something in some ways that it doesn't sound like a lot, but it did mean a lot. And I Mm -hmm. think Howard Johnson's was something that was, it sounds terrible, a place and a time that no longer exists. Yeah. I mean, I, I I can't correlate any restaurant today that would actually even remotely have the same aspect as Howard Johnson's did. Right. Right. Hi, this is Rigor, host of Then Is Now podcast and The East Meets the West. I just wanted to say thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. We appreciate your support as we grow the audience for our shows. You could find our links to our Patreon page as well as our Tee Public page at havenpodcasts.com. With Patreon, you'll get a lot of exclusive stuff, including our monthly pop culture newsletter, cool gifts, discounts for Tee Public, and our special exclusive show, Then Is Now Filmmakers series, in which we interview directors, producers, writers, composers, special effects guys, basically anybody who works behind the scenes in film and television and get their insights into the process of creating films and TV shows. Also at our Tee Public page, you'll find cool merch that you can get or even give to others as gifts. You can find those links at our website, or you can go directly to tpublic.com slash stores slash Haven Podcasts and patreon.com slash then is now podcast. Enjoy. Shark Bites, Shark Bites Podcast, it's the greatest show in history. From the Dorkening Network, hosted by a nerd who's named Patsy. From movie reviews to tips on surviving the coronavirus, Shark Bites has it all. Follow us on Facebook and suggest topics at sharkbitespod at gmail.com. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, 
like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Well, well, it's interesting. We're talking about franchising. We're talking about, uh, you know, uh, a, a very specific time when this all took place. And you made a good point earlier about uh, how uh, this was a place that was sort of the first of its kind of fast food, even though we don't really, uh, even though that's changed. Um, so with that said, uh, when, when, did the, when do you feel that transition occurred to the fast food that we know today or the franchises that we know today where it's just, it's different than, than what you're describing? Well, by the mid-1960s, fast food, as what we know of fast food, began to actually encroach upon Howard Johnson's uh, territory. Burger King, McDonald's, um, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken, they sure. were all very good. And it was truly fast food. But combined, the three of them could never even compete against Howard Johnson's in 1965, 1966. Mm. But within three years, Howard Johnson began to realize in some ways they weren't reinvesting in the business. They had bought out the Red Coach Grill. They had bought out Mug and Muffin. They actually started the Ground Round in 1969. So they were, I hate to use the word, but they were pissing money. And the money was not being reinvested like Howard Johnson had done. Sure. And that concept was, in some ways, by the early 1970s, you know, Howard Johnson was tooted as someplace where our grandparents would go for dinner. Right. Right. It was no longer hip. It wasn't cool. And even the ground round didn't quite cut it. So in a lot of ways, you know, when you really wanted fast food, you didn't go to Howard Johnson's. I mean, it would take 15, 20 minutes, but you could go to McDonald's and you could just get a hamburger. You could go to Kentucky Fried Chicken and the chicken was cooked and in a box to take home in five minutes. So I think in a lot of ways during that period of time, the son, Howard Brennan Johnson, who was equipped to actually run this company. He had attended Moses Brown in Providence. He attended Milton Academy, Phillips Andover, Yale, Yale, and the Harvard Business School. So he was somebody, when he took over the business in 1959, that he should have been able to keep that company running, even with competition. But in a lot of ways, he began to realize in some ways that the competition was making inroads. And rather than compete, he would try to buy them out. Hmm. And by buying them out, he basically had a cash flow problem. And during the period of the late 60s, early 70s, you know, there really was a little bit of a, you know, difficulty. And in some ways, they weren't opening as many new restaurants. Granted, they had probably close to you know, 700 restaurants. They probably had around 900 motels. But the company in some ways by the late 1970s was something in some ways that was only a 
shadow of its former self. And in 1979, the company was sold to Imperial Group Limited in the United Kingdom and at $28 a share, mind you, which I thought was kind of cute. But um, during that period, it was something we began to realize that the company was broken apart. And today it's owned by the Wyndham Corporation. But it was a sad situation because it was something in some ways that once a company of this sort closes, and we see it over the last three or four years because of the COVID epidemic, many businesses have simply gone out, many restaurants as well. It's something that's sad because they're our mainstay, our reliance. And it's also the fact that, you know, it's hard to see things change, but it really did. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to just quickly jump back a second here and ask you about, um, you know, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, Howard had a um, uh, an investor named Lydia Pinkham Gove. It was a Gove or Gov? Yes. Gove. Gove. Yeah. And they built um, she built one on the Jericho Turnpike. Oh, they built it together on the Jericho Turnpike. Um, what made that one stand out amongst all the other franchises? Well, one of the things is it was built because the New York World's Fair was being opened at Rego Park, New York. And during that period of time, she had already bought a couple of other franchises in New York. She was a very wealthy woman, and it was something that she had to come up with $300,000. Mind you, that's the height of the Depression. Howard Johnson owned one half, she owned the other. And she was treasurer of a company that was started by her grandmother, Lydia Pinkham. And Lydia Pinkham had provided a medicine for women that's supposed to cure every ailment. Because it was 98% alcohol, it probably cured every male <laughs> ailment as well. But it survived FDA scrutiny. Her father was not only a graduate of Harvard University, but Harvard Law School. He was the president. And Lydia Gove was the treasurer. She was making $300,000 a year in the 1930s. Because it was a good investment and they knew that you had to go buy this restaurant to go to the New York World's Fair, which was obviously going to bring millions of people over the two years, 1939 and 1940, that it was open. The two of them were able not only to market it as the largest orange roof restaurant in the world, that seated 1,100 people at any given time. And of course, it had specials that went the gamut, not just businessmen specials, but they had fine cuts of meat, fine poultry, as well as the fried clams and grilled frankfurts. So in that instance, not only did they invest in it, but they also minted a token. And if that token was in your hand when you were passing, and you either had to walk by it, a bicycle, bus, automobile, you stopped, you got a percentage off your meal, whether it was a full meal or just a piece of pie and a cup of coffee. Those tokens had millions of turns. And we realized in that instance, this was something that was a fantastic aspect for marketing. And it was a great success. Johnson realized in some ways that many of these things were doable, but it was also something with a woman such as Lydia Gove, very sex successful, as well as somebody who was business savvy, 
that he could actually make it into something that was just incredible. And it did become a great success. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, were you able to acquire one of those World's Fair tokens? I bid on eBay more than once, but they continually went for hundreds of dollars. I was a little bit shocked. But oh, I have wow. a picture of one. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> the obverse was Simple Simon of the Pyman with the drooling dog, and on the um, reverse was actually New York World's Fair in 1939. Right. And they were something in some ways that, you know, I was really intrigued with the story because it was something in a lot of ways. You know, you had Edward Bernays actually doing the public relations for the World's Fair. So it was something that was going to bring in millions of people. And it was something in that instance that people realized. I mean, the food was already pretty well known by 1939. So it was something in some ways that was going to be a very, um, hopefully, a very good and successful business. So now I have a question that's kind of sort of twofold. So Howard, or, or rather, I should say the... Um well, Howard Johnson or the company, I, I guess they're both kind of one and the same at this point. They they personally owned a lot of the restaurants and roadside ice cream stands, even though they franchised out um, quite Correct. a bit. W franchising, I guess, was new. Why is it that they owned some and then franchise out others? Were there Was there a reason for that? Well, one of the things is if they owned the restaurant outright, and of course the food was provided through the commissary, it was a success. But they would actually do something which were called Frankfurter Roasts. Howard Johnson had bought a mansion in Milton, and every summer he would put up a marquee that could hold 400 people, and he would invite prospective people that wanted to buy a franchise. And they were called Frankfurter Roasts because the only food they served were grilled Frankfurts and creamery butter served in a toasted bun. But in the four corners of the marquee tent, they had open bars. And this was something which would attract people, both men and women, that would come along with their spouse or friends. And in that instance, he would sell them for the tune of $4,000. Hmm. So not only did he sell a franchise, but then if you did buy one, you had to attend uh, Howard Johnson Institute, so to speak, <laughs> for eight yeah. weeks, 40 hours a week to learn how to run it but you paid $4,000 and you couldn't serve any food or ice cream that wasn't provided by Howard Johnson. Right. So in that instance, it provided cash flow. And you know, $4,000 in the 1940s and 1950s was really an awful lot of money. It was almost the price of a house. Right. So many people began to realize like, um, Reginald Heber Sprague, who bought the first franchise, though he spent $17,000 to actually build the, the restaurant and, of course, you know, create the parking lot and everything of that sort, and he had to provide the food through the commissary, he was able to pay off his debt in two years, even though he was only open nine months each year. Hmm. And in that hmm. instance... $17,000 in 1935 at the height of the Depression was a fortune. Right. And he was able to do this, and the family was still doing this. When I met his daughter one time, I was giving this lecture at a retirement community in 
Westwood, Massachusetts. And it was incredible. Everybody remembered Howard Johnson, the whole bit, and this woman was introduced to me. And it sounds terrible, but the next morning I couldn't remember her name. So finally I connected with the daughter who was there with her and they loaned some photographs on Reginald Sprague. But it was something in some ways that this family who had this piece of property and they were hard hit by the depression had a regrouping it became very successful throughout the 1960s with the Howard Johnson franchise. So it was something in some ways that if you worked with Howard Johnson, I think basically he would kind of oversee and make sure that everything was running smoothly. And it seemed to have done that well. And, uh, and uh, how did he know that franchises weren't ripping him off, especially when he branched out across the country? Well, I suppose, I mean, probably they could. I mean, Aunt Maud made the best coconut cake on the face of the earth. We're not supposed to serve it, but I'm sure somebody must have done that type of thing. Hmm, sure. But in some ways, you know, it was also the type of a thing that you just said, if the roast beef wasn't the way that it was the last time, I'm sure it was reported to Howard Johnson. Right. <laughs> and there was also the fact he had various people that were inspectors. There was a story one time, and it was in Reader's Digest, and Howard Johnson would show up at these restaurants sometimes unannounced. His big black Cadillac with HJ28, which was the license plate. <laughs> nice. He would go into That's the great. kitchen, open the refrigerators and freezers, and check things out. And of course, the manager would come running. Who are you? What are you doing? And one time they called the police and they were going to arrest Howard Johnson because <laughs> he was so aggressive in the kitchen because they weren't doing something correct. So I think in a lot of ways, he would travel, you know, many times just to see mm-hmm. how franchises were operating. And, you know, it might have also been the fact, maybe you're right, maybe the uh, tally was a little lower than it was this month versus the same month last year or the year previous. That would be precipitous to actually making a unannounced call to visit. Mm-hmm. But I don't. I don't think in some ways, I, I hope they weren't, but yeah. I don't think they probably were simply for the fact that, you know, there were major accounting firms actually overseeing all of the action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so just to sort of switch gears a little bit, uh, tell us about the color scheme of the buildings uh, 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 that worked in the restaurant's favor. Well, specifically, for the younger audience members uh, who have probably never been, can you describe what they looked like even? Well, this is the funny thing was, they were colonial revival in style. So they were white painted wood. They had a beautiful cupola. They had an orange roof that was provided by Norman Pemberton Roofing Company in Quincy. And the interiors were usually wide planked pine paneling from Frank Curry Company, which was in Boston South End. But the whole aspect was these orange roofs. I mean, it's garish. And the turquoise blue shutters were incredible. Mm -hmm. But it was something that certainly caught your attention. And this was the color scheme that was suggested by John Eagles Alcott, 
the graphic designer. I mean, when you really think about it, um, to see something such as orange and blue, I mean, it's a bit much. But yeah. I'm sure it was yeah. something that people must have seen coming around the corner. But I think it was also some ways that, you know, it was that time of the country, you know, in the 30s and 40s, the ascendancy of the automobile, people out for a Sunday drive. I mean, there were lots of roadside restaurants and, you know, bars and ice cream stands. But I think Howard Johnson was cornering the market simply for the fact of his color scheme. Mm. And that truly was something in a lot of ways that many people just absolutely loved. Sure. And I think in that instance, you know, you had these waitresses in uniforms that were designed by a woman named Sister Parrish, who was a socialite. And she had a design company called Parrish Hadley. And during the 1930s, a woman who once had servants was hard hit by the Depression. She started to design houses and things for people that still had money. And she was a friend of Howard Johnson's. And she did the waitress uniforms that were that teal green with a white um, apron and cap. And when he said, how much do I owe you for this new design? She said, no money, but I'll take a lifetime supply of ice cream. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. So, she's a girl after my own heart. Yeah. Oh, my God. Now, and I just kind of want to say, you know, to the listeners, you know, people need to understand that Howard Johnson's was a huge, huge part of our pop culture, as well as our American history. And one thing that I love is that you've got a lot of great passages in the book that give not only the history of the restaurant, but also the history of what was going on at the time, particularly the highway system. I mean, you've got a list of all the architects and architecture styles and notable employees. You've even got recipes in there. You know, that's something else. And it's just one page after another. You never know what to expect. And it's, it's just gets greater, greater and greater every time. Thank you very much. I, I really tried in a lot of ways to provide something for everyone. And in a lot of ways, you know, I love ice cream. But, you know, today I try different ice creams. I'm never pleased. But sometimes that concept, maybe as I get older, the memory of Howard Johnson's ice cream becomes enhanced. I don't know. I think it was probably the best ice cream there ever was. And it was a premium ice cream as early as the 1920s. And sometimes when you think about these recipes, and I, I really did try awfully hard to, you know, copy out these different things that actually were incredible. I mean, when you think about the foods that they really did serve, it was just wonderful. But I have a whole chapter just on things, you know, filet of scrod, fisherman style, macaroni and cheese, clams, um, coconut cake, which I absolutely love, sour cream cake, carrot cake. Um, they, they do things in a lot of ways that maybe are in a place and a time. Chicken livers on brochette, chicken croquet, <laughs> Chicken curry, um, chicken pot pie, Boston brown bread with butter, Welsh rabbit, which we loved as children, and I still serve on occasion. But these were things in a lot of ways that the general public enjoyed eating. And 
I think in a lot of ways, Howard Johnson was providing people with the things they had become accustomed to, and they truly did have the same palate quality as they previously did. So whether it was just a a grilled frankfurt in a toasted bun, or maybe you were having clam chowder along with fried clams, french fries, you know, tartar sauce and coleslaw, it was something that was a delicious meal no matter what. And he still still make... Oh, go ahead. No, I still make um, my hot dogs grilled in creamery butter according to this menu <laughs> yeah and i serve little toasted buns and i say to myself oh you know howard johnson but i i think back to this and a lot of times it's not just a historian that is recounting the past many many people will think of these things and say ah hot dogs i remember having them at howard johnson yes or you know things that was special. I mean, a lot of times people went there for special occasions. I mean, Howard Johnson's was a nice place to go. Right. And whether it was a birthday party or an anniversary party, it was something in some ways that I think there was something there for everyone. And it didn't matter if you were having steak or whether you were having macaroni and cheese. And it, it seems was like he was everyone. right. And it seems like he was disguising upscale food to make it more accessible. So it didn't have that upscale experience because he was catering to families and children. And, you know, because I never thought of it as upscale, but I remember seeing fancy things on the menu, but I didn't know what it was. So I didn't order it. You know, I ordered the hot dog. <laughs> well, the other thing was in the book, I even say point blank. Howard Johnson didn't use the French terminology for the food. That's right. He used English, and everyone knew what it was. Right. And in that way, what he was really doing was beginning to introduce, you know, the general public to, you're right, a little bit of upscale food. But it was totally innocuous of any pretension. Right. And I think that was the thing that made him... You know, somebody that was patronized. You know, he did go, it sounds really weird, the store club, the 21 in New York. You know, he went to the plaza for dinner. He would dress in black tie every evening. You know, his wife always looked lovely and everything of that sort. But, you know, in a lot of ways, he tried things in these restaurants. Maybe he did them in a way that was a more subtle version that he would offer at his restaurants. And like I say, this cookbook, which was 300 pages, um, was something that was mass produced. Everyone had it. And it was the same recipe everywhere you went. Wow. That's amazing. So just moving up the timeline a little bit, I wanted to ask you about the, um, the motor hotels. Is that where the term motel comes from, first of all? Well, they did use the word motel previous to that time. Motels as early as the 19-teens and 20s. But it wouldn't be until 1952 that Howard Johnson opened a motel in Savannah, Georgia. A lot of times, you know, snowbirds leaving New England are going to Florida. And there were really no places that were clean, let alone 
you know, something where there was something to eat. So Howard Johnson not only opened a restaurant, but adjacent to it would have a motel. Standardized rooms, standardized decor. They were clean, separate showers and bathrooms. They had televisions and a radio and sometimes a pool. So in a lot of ways, they were the ideal for the traveling public. And many people could even stay at a Howard Johnson motel even for vacation. It wasn't just to stay the night as you traveled on to your destination. But I talk about that in the book and how by the period, I think, of the 1970s, I mean, there were over 780 motels throughout the country. And they were something that was, again, well patronized. Oh, yeah. And it's it's funny, too, because I have... um... I have a fond memory of going to Howard Johnson's motel uh, as a kid with my parents and my my nana. I think it was in Lake George, New York, and um, I I could be wrong about the location, but I will never forget it. I have a vivid memory of being in the Howard Johnson's hotel, and um, my parents had one room, and my nana and I had the other one, and her and I watched TV like that night, and there was this episode of The Incredible Hulk. It was the one where <laughs> Esther Roll owned a cab company and of course David Banner had a saver from the bad guys but that episode <laughs> always stood out to me because of that vivid memory of being at the Howard Johnson's hotel <laughs> that's funny I know I mean that's the thing in a lot of ways you know you might think of that and by the way the name of that uh television show was Mad Men oh okay oh right okay and I think that was something that brought up Howard Johnson's and a lot of people would say what what is Howard Johnson's but (laughs) I think you're right there are things oh I remember traveling as a child everything of that sort and um, we never stayed at Howard Johnson's I don't know why but Mm. the concept is that in some ways that those memories are precious because they actually do create a sense of connection And that connection in some ways is something that makes us realize, I mean, we're all historians. We all have stories. Right. And we have to actually relate them. And I have fun with that. I mean, when I listen to the story sometimes that someone might say at a dinner party or something of that sort, um, I like to pursue it because in some ways people have great memories. And, you know, what is it that you remember? And you say a movie, but it's all aspect of something that's much more involved. So it's it's fun. When I do these books, I nice. enjoy it. That's awesome. I have one more <clears throat> memory I just wanted to ask you about, actually, because I don't recall reading it in the book. But I have this phrase, Hojo to go. <laughs> what was that from? <laughs> Did they? I don't know. It wasn't something that was used prior to 1960. But beginning at the time of 1965, when I talked about the competitive um, fast food restaurants, it was something that was the beginning by the 1966, 68, 69, that you could simply go in there and take food. You didn't have to actually sit at the dining room table and you could actually just simply take it as to go. And it was something in a lot of ways, it still took time if you maybe telephoned ahead of time, but it was something that was really, it was a thing that you could take and didn't have to dine there. To sort of compete with like McDonald's or Burger King? Exactly. Yeah. But unlike McDonald's and Burger King, where you had a hamburger in less than two or three minutes, 
you still had to wait the 15 to 20 minutes for Howard Johnson's. Right, right. Yeah, I remember seeing that on a sign or a, a placemat or something when, when I was there as a kid. Um, and I, you know what? I love that you have the whole timeline history of the restaurant in this book, and it goes all the way up to 2013 where there was only two left, one of which was yeah. here in Maine. Are they still open? Uh, no. It closed about two years ago, uh. and the last one only closed a month ago, which was at Lake George, New York. Now, they weren't uh. anything related to Howard Johnson's. They were originally franchises. But after the company was sold in 1979, they became part of a franchise associates, which was a legal entity. Huh. And the family could continue to run them, but if they closed it or sold it, it couldn't reopen as Howard Johnson's. Right, right. But I think one of the concepts is they weren't serving 28 flavors of ice cream. They were they were probably serving fried clams, but they weren't soft and Ipswich fried clams. And, you know, the whole aspect was, in some ways, it was just another restaurant that had the orange roof and the name Howard Johnson. We're always looking, we, we stay in the Cape in the summer, and we're always looking at the Howard Johnson, which is in Yarmouth, I believe, to see, oh, are there people there and whatever. It's such a shame, because even though they have a motel, there's no restaurant. Uh. And... I think in this day and age, if there was a Howard Johnson restaurant that would open, and we think of these retro type of things, right. if it provided the quality food that we all remember, it would probably be an immediate success because I don't think it would just be something for people 50 and above, but I bet younger people would look at this as something that, my God, I mean, great menus and everything of that sort. But it's also the fact in some ways that it was it was well done, well presented in a clean, um, attractive restaurant. And in some ways, it's become part of our legacy, our history. It just doesn't exist anymore except in our minds. Yeah, yeah. And oddly enough, I just thought of something. Um, I just realized, uh, remembered, I should say, back... I'm going to say two or three years ago, my wife and I were traveling up in Maine and we found a ground round and I was shocked that oh. they were still around. <laughs> no pun, no pun intended. I, <laughs> I, I met, yeah, I met the man who actually opened them about a week ago in Katuit. I gave a lecture on Howard Johnson's. Oh, wow. So he was chatting with me and he was the man who worked with Howard Johnson to open them in 1969. But I think the whole concept is, I mean, some of these Still, you know, still have the name, but I don't know if it's associated so much right. with the aspect of Howard Johnson, because when the company was sold, it was really broken apart. Marriott Corporation took all of the motels, um, and then you know the company was split. All the Howard Johnson-owned restaurants were closed, and then of course the ones that were franchises were franchise associates. They were legal entities that had to be protected. Right. And the commissaries closed. So it was something in a lot of ways that it was almost an immediate change. And it was sad because in some ways it took, you know, 35 years for the owner to build this business. And it was something that was to really change between 1959 and 1979. In 20 years, it just gradually declined. It, it really is sad. You know, it's one of those things... Um 
where, you know, you don't think about it. You just take it for granted, and then you turn around, and it's not there anymore. And you're like, oh, exactly. man. You know, like the drive-in theater, for the most part, I mean, they kind of got a resurgence now, but, you know, we had one in every town, and now I have to drive like an hour to get to the nearest one, you know? It's funny you say that, because we often go to upstate New York for the Culinary Institute, and there's a drive-in theater in Hyde Park, New York, across from the FDR um, estate, and I always try to go there, and it's something that's almost like a tidbit from the 50s or 60s, even looks like the 60s. Oh, yeah. But it's such fun, and oh, I is. mean, that's the type of a thing. And hmm. you know what? Now that you mentioned New York, I believe just over the Massachusetts border into New York, there's sort of a cluster of drive-in theaters that are still surviving and thriving. Um, so that, that's a show for another day. But, you know, Anthony, our di- our listeners definitely need to read your book. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some of your other books? We kind of briefly touched on them earlier. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I've not only done the Howard Johnson book, but I did a book on Baker Chocolate, which is the oldest manufacturer of chocolate in North America. It's owned by Kraft Family Foods today. But it was started in Dorchester in 1765, and of course, it provided baking chocolate. It was a high percentage cacao. But in the 1920s, it was bought by General Foods, and they began to make readily edible um, confectionaries. I've also done Jordan Marsh, New England's largest department store, which was a major store in Boston. In 1951, they opened their first suburban store, which was in Framingham, Massachusetts, at Shoppers World. Eventually, they had over 13 stores. But I've begun a new series with Font Hill, and they're called Traditions in Boston. So these are things that we share. It doesn't matter who we are, but we really share them. And it's Christmas traditions in Boston, Hmm. Thanksgiving traditions in Boston, Easter traditions in Boston, Valentine's Day traditions in Boston, and coming out on August 1st is Halloween traditions in Boston. (laughs) And they're beautifully illustrated, much in color, and they basically show the whole aspect of this holiday, what it represented, why it was or wasn't celebrated, because many people don't realize Christmas was banned by law by Massachusetts in 1665. Wow. And, you know, these are things, yeah, and I I dedicated the book on Halloween to Stingy Jack, who was the man who basically is for whom the Jack O'Lantern is named for. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. uh, So they're fun. (laughs) So I've done, you know, a wide series of books, and sometimes I have more fun with some than others, but I still think all of them are a good example in some ways of, again, preserving local history. And it's not just architecture. It's not just social development. But even a thing like Halloween, which really was only a 20th century American invention of a holiday, has evolved into something today that's quite incredible. But when I was a child in the late 50s and 1960s, these costumes and parties and all sorts of things were something that were looked forward to all year long. Yeah. So these books are fun to do, but in a lot of ways, my magnus opus this year is 
Inferno, the Great Boston Fire of 1872. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. This is, yeah, this is the 150th anniversary of 65 acres of downtown Boston being destroyed by a fire. So I did my final edits this week, and it should be out on September 15th. Oh, awesome. Well, we're going to have you back. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I'd also love to read the Jordan Marsh book and then talk to you about that because I always loved Jordan Marsh as a kid. It was like my mother would shop, but I would play in and amongst the clothing racks, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I'll send you a, a JPEG of it. Oh, awesome. Awesome. So, Great. Anthony, you have an open invitation to come back anytime, not just to discuss these two books that we mentioned, but any of your books. Or if you have a topic in history in general that you think would be good for our audience, you know, we deal with a lot of pop culture. Obviously, Howard Johnson's was a major part of our pop culture. If you want to come back and uh, throw me a topic, and you're more than welcome to anytime you'd like. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Awesome. Awesome. So where can the listeners find you and your books Uh, And in particular, for this episode, The History of Howard Johnson's How a Massachusetts Soda Fountain Became an American Icon. Where can they find those? They can go to Amazon.com. It appears, and it's usually available in different formats, uh, either Kindle, hardcover, or softcover. But they can also go to Facebook. And I do a daily post on a thing called Lost Boston. And in some ways, I often do things on Howard Johnson, even with recipes, but I do a series of other things that actually are extracts from the various books that I've written. I think in a lot of ways that local history is something that isn't something that's always going to attract the public to go to a library or a historical society to sit through a lecture. But sometimes when it's either on Zoom or if you do something which is a small blog on Facebook, with a wonderful photograph, people really can be entranced with the aspect of history. Hmm. And in a lot of ways, it's something that doesn't really matter who we are or where our families came from. In some ways, it does affect all of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank Mm. you so much for joining us today. Yes, thank you. you. Take care. You too. So, dude, those are some amazing knowledge bombs that he dropped on us, eh? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, so uh, I actually have not been to a Howard Johnson's restaurant just because there was a little bit uh, a little bit before my time. But, I mean, I'm sure they were still around even as young. I just never been to one, period. So it was cool to listen to it. Nice, nice. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it was so good, you know. Um, just seeing a picture of a Howard Johnson's brings back so many memories. And, you know, it's... It's one of the I like I was saying to to Anthony, it's one of those things that you don't appreciate in the moment and then you turn around and it's gone. And, you you know, I wish yeah. I had the wherewithal as a kid to have been able to somehow take pictures of these things. Oh, yeah, for sure. I have I certainly have places like that. I can certainly identify with that. So, uh, yeah, it's one of those things where in the moment it's there, you experience it. Then, like you said uh time turns and then next thing you know it's not there anymore it's really kind of it's really kind of sad it is it is well folks that was a great discussion so be sure to check out anthony's links which we've put we'll put in the show notes um we also wanted to remind you that we've started up a new monthly live streaming show 
Bill Van Rin from Groovy Doom and the Drive-In Asylum Double Feature and I have teamed up to host a streaming video show called Fright Lounge in which, in which we discuss all horror media. If you're unsure if you want to get into horror or you're a seasoned horror fan, this is the show for you. You can check out the details at havenpodcasts.com and the Fright Lounge link is on the right. Also, the Fright Lounge has the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Fright Lounge, and that's where we'll keep you up to date on what's coming up and all of our broadcasting dates and times. It's usually the first Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern of every month. However, uh, this past June and now this month, July, it's going to be the second just because of scheduling issues. Um, but we usually go live on Facebook and YouTube. And for those who are listening to this and did watch the last one, yeah, I screwed up with the uh, with the YouTube connection, but I fixed that now. So. <laughs> um, and don't forget that Patreon is the place where you can support artists. We've got some great stuff going on on our Patreon page, and we can put more on too, um, including our exclusive filmmaker series where we talk to writers, directors, producers, basically anybody behind the scenes in filming TV. So please check out our Patreon link on our website and help support your favorite pop culture show. It's only three bucks. And what's three bucks, Chris? Same price as a cup of coffee. That's right. And we just <laughs> sound like we're on a PBS, uh, you know, telephone. Right. <laughs> it was Jerry you, Lewis. Yeah, there you go. Well, when you sign up, you'll be entered into <laughs> right. the contest. Right. <laughs> well, seriously, actually, you will be entered into a contest to win Sean Cannon's book, Way of the Cobra. For those don't, who don't know him, he's a, a, an actor who played the villain Mike Barnes in Karate Kid 3, as well as A.J. Quartermain on General Hospital, Deacon Sharp on Bold and the Beautiful, and tons of other roles. You know, it's a great deal, so check it out. And while you're on our site, you can also check out the T Public link and get some cool merch. Uh, we got a new classes and session design up, which is not so new anymore, but we're going to put a new one. Uh, we're going to put some new designs out soon. Very cool, very cool. And we also want your feedback. So please email us at thatisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join the conversation at our Facebook group, That Is Now Podcast Group. That Is Now Podcast Group is a proud member of the Dorkening Podcast Network. So be sure to check out all the great shows there at the dorkeningpodcastnetwork.com. Also on our website at havenpodcast.com is our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and Spaghetti Western movies. And That Is Now is also on youtube so visit youtube.com slash user slash uncle death one to get the latest videos as well as other fun videos please subscribe to our youtube page and also share with your friends and get them to subscribe as well don't forget to hit the little bell and get notifications of new videos that's right that's right and you know one last thing folks please go to wherever you download your podcast from and if you like what you're hearing if you like this show leave us a great review a five-star review is always awesome because what that does is that changes the algorithm. So when people go searching for one thing, ours if ours is kind of a similar show, it'll pop up and they might go, oh, what's that? And they'll, they'll you know, come and listen to our show and we'll just get more listeners that way. So you, you can find us on all the podcasting apps, especially the big three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Class dismissed. Now podcast is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media.
For more shows like the one you just heard, check out the Dorkening Podcast Network at thedorkening.com. <laughs>